and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why am I having this guest on again? That's right. This is another Maintainer Month podcast. We're here to interview maintainers and talk to them about what it's like to be one today in collaboration with GitHub. Today, I have Ruth Cheesley. Now, you may recognize Ruth. We've had her on the Sustain podcast and we also had her on State of Open, like Open UK conference. So it was another mini one. I figured it'd be good to have Ruth on because she is a maintainer, even though she may not think of herself as one. As part of like an open source project, Ruth, hello, you are also on the line, correct? How are you? I am. Thank you for having me again. I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, it's an interesting topic around whether you are or not a maintainer and what that actually means in open source. Yeah. I think so too. So... Tell me again, what project do you work for slash maintain? It's called Mautic, which is, or Mautic, if you're American, <laughs> which you spell M-A-U-T-I-C. And it's an open source marketing automation platform. So it lets you learn about what your customers are doing and use what you learn about their activities to personalize the way you communicate with them across lots of different channels. So I know that Mautic recently split off from Acquia and now it's its own thing, which is really cool. And I know you're one of the people spearheading that. Tell me about how large the community is and how small the maintainer group is. Yeah. So I was looking at the stats and there's somewhere around 7,000 people who've actually been active at some point in some way in all of the channels that we monitor over all of time. We are growing by about 200 new active people per month. Average-ish is about two to 300 people active a month, around about two to 300 monthly contributions a month. And that's across everything that we consider to be a contribution. And there's around about 30,000 active instances of Mautic across the world that we're aware of through, we get that through built with. Quite a large project. How many people are in the core team? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you call the core team. So we have a leadership team and you can learn more about that at mau.tc slash leadership. And that's a team lead for each of the teams. So ultimately that's four plus we have assistant team leads. The product team actually has two assistant team leads, one focused on engineering and one focused more on the product. So that makes up what I would consider to be our leadership team. And then we do have people who are within the product team, more responsible for the governance of the product itself. So what you would call a core team in terms of open source, that's actually just a core team in one of our teams, if that makes sense. So we've also got those folks who have elevated privileges and are involved in those discussions on the technical side of the project. And then there's me as project lead as well. And one of the Acquia engineers has 50% of his time. So he's also called a technical community manager. So he deals with the technical governance side of things as well. So when you talk about a community lead, do you consider yourself a maintainer? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. Is that catch-all, isn't it, Paul? <laughs> it depends on how you interpret the role of a maintainer. If you consider it to be folks who actually write the code, then no, because I don't write the code. But if you consider it as people who are actually instrumental in keeping the projects going, moving forwards, deciding the long-term vision and what have you, then very much so. And I really like the definition that I saw, which was that maintainers are conductors of an open source project orchestra. 
Because in a way, that's sort of what I think of as maintainers, not necessarily coders. Some other areas of projects are actually also very important. So conducting an orchestra sounds difficult. I certainly have no experience of doing it. Can you tell me an event that was discordant that you helped to orchestrate through? Yeah, probably the most difficult was when the acquisition was first announced by Acquia in 2019. So what happened is they acquired the SaaS company that the founder created to provide Mautic in a hosted environment. That was acquired by Acquia so they could roll it into their marketing cloud. And with that, they acquired the brand and the the trademarks and the ownership effectively of the community. And at that point, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty in the community. There were people who were kind of actively contributing, but there wasn't really a governance model or anything like that at the time. And it wasn't really clear what was going to happen to the open source project. There was a serious threat of a fork happening because of that, because of the lack of clarity. And yeah, all contributions in the community basically ground to a halt because people didn't really know what was going on. So it was really challenging. Like It was a really difficult time in the community. At that point, I was in the community. I was a contributor and I was someone who was using Mautic. I had a vested interest, basically. And it was interesting because I was brought in to become a community manager by Acquia to actually help to navigate through this process. But in doing so, folks basically felt like I was being brought in to do their bidding. And that came with a whole lot of suspicion and mistrust and which I had to work with. I was, you know, like I was trying to support the open source project, but yeah, I had to work really hard to gain trust through that and to actually give the community a vision for what this open source project could be like in this situation where Acquia owns the brands and the trademarks. So we created a governance model, which brought a lot of clarity to that, I feel. It was like, this is how we think things are going to work. And we did that collaboratively with the community, but it's very much, this is what Acquia wants to happen. And just defaulted to transparency. So like absolutely everything that we did in the open, all of the things I was working on were on a Trello board that was public that people could see and comment on. All of my Google Docs were public so people could see what I was working on personally and just kind of tried to build trust and to build that vision of like what we could build through this process. And I think that really helped. And it just looked for quick wins. One of the big things was we didn't have anywhere to discuss things because the forums had been taken offline because they were so heavily spammed. So migrating the forums to a platform that we could use that would support the community to have somewhere to have these discussions about their concerns and fears and to find out how to get involved was a quick win. Well, not quick. It took quite a while, but it was the thing that could help the community to see that this was a positive step and that there was good coming out of this, of being able to support the community full-time, basically. You mentioned working in the open as a way of building trust. I think a lot of maintainers go through phase where they have to build trust with their communities if they're not the first core person to be involved, they didn't start the community in the first place. And especially as most people who start code, I would say at some point move on. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you have any tips besides just open all of your documentation and all of your strategy to make it easier for other maintainers to build trust and competence in their communities. Uh, Can you just talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always important that all things are impermanent and all things will change in the future. So it's always important to go into things with that in mind. 
and to plan with an up and out mentality. So making sure that everything's open and transparent kind of helps if someone has to step in, that everything is there. But you can do that in a structured way so it's not quite as chaotic as just everything's everywhere and there's no organization. I think in terms of leading the project and bringing people up with you, so like trying to empower people to take on micro areas of leadership or micro areas of ownership, if not leadership, can be a really good way of nurturing the garden that is contributors so that some of them might grow into those big oaks. They might grow into the folks who will take up a bit more of a role and will get more involved. But unless you actually start to water everything, (laughs) you're never going to know. So yeah. I like that answer. What's been fun? There has been quite a lot of fun in the community. It has also been a lot of hard work, but there's been a lot of fun. I think organizing our first ever conference is one that definitely stands out for me because we'd never done anything like this before. It was right at the start of the pandemic. We had to try and figure out how the heck we were going to make this happen. And it really was the whole community coming together to bring something into being, to find the right tooling, to encourage and inspire people to speak. And it was a real celebration of the international community. So we had seven languages represented. We had six tracks running throughout the day. We had over 300 people there. And there was just so much joy in listening to each other, talking about how we're using Maltec and connecting the dots of things that you'd never thought about doing, hearing from other open source projects as well, because we had speakers coming in from different areas and just realizing how much more inclusive it made it by having the event online, because there were people there who cut the cost on a pay what you can basis and people there who would not have been able to come to an in-person event. Yeah, it was just great. I really enjoyed it and had a lot of fun. There's other things, but I think that one stands out for me. I've been to conferences where there's been two languages. How did you manage seven? Were there like seven different talks given in different languages? That's just a lot. Yeah, Yeah, well, we had six tracks running throughout the day. So six different rooms, effectively. And when we had people who spoke a different language, say Portuguese, we tried to chunk three or four talks together. And we had someone who was an MC who spoke Portuguese, who MC'd that section. And then there would be a German track and that would be like four sessions. And then there would be a German MC who would be managing that. And people understood that those sessions would be not in English, although people were still a bit grumpy that they couldn't understand it. It's like, welcome to, if English is not your first language, that's what it's like for them all the time. So it was a learning process. But actually, I think administratively, it was a challenge, but it was really great for the community because people were able to speak about stuff in their own languages. But we haven't had seven languages since then. I think the most we've had since then was maybe four or five over two days. So yeah, there have not been as many, mainly because On that event, sometimes we had like one or two sessions, which was quite difficult to schedule. So now we say we need at least three sessions and the track lead to schedule them just from a practicalities point of view. But it was wonderful. I mean, it was really fun and chaotic, but wonderful. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Maybe four or five languages is what we had is the most amazing humble brag ever. I mean, that's still better than most conferences and projects. So I'm really amazed by that. That's really cool. I should write a blog post about that. So I feel like it's really important to enable people to speak in their own language to help grow the community in those areas. Totally. I've tried to get a sustained podcast going in Portuguese and Spanish a few times. 
it's just really difficult because we need to find <laughs> enough people who are interested who want to then host that and run with it. But yeah, no, that's amazing. That's really cool. What are you looking forward to coming up? Obviously, with the becoming an independent project, a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is on governance and fundraising and that side of things. So I think that's really exciting, but it's also quite fundamental to the project. If we don't get it right, then it's going to be a real challenge going forward, sustainability-wise. So I'm looking forward to that actually succeeding, that process succeeding. I feel like we're on a good track for that. Ultimately, my vision for Mortic is that whenever someone in the world is considering a marketing automation tool, that a Mortic-based solution is in one of the top three on the table when they're considering that. So it might be an open source self-hosted, it might be a SaaS that's based on Mortic or whatever. So I'm excited to sort of start building up to that. So we've been very much building, focusing more on the stability of our core and not having so much resource to look at feature parity and exciting new innovations and stuff like that. We've just really been fighting to keep up, but now we're kind of catching up and we've got more contributors who want to do fun and exciting new things. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is like starting to really push the boundaries of what's possible with marketing automation, starting to bring in features that really excite marketers that they don't find in proprietary tools and highlighting the power of open source in that respect of how we can do really cool stuff and not be dependent on a proprietary company having it in their roadmap. So yeah, I'm looking forward to exploring that in different ways that we can achieve that. I want to ask a different question. What are you looking forward to in your career as a maintainer? Because you've been doing the same sort of work now for a few years. So what's your growth path look like? What happens after you get a lot of admin done and do a lot of hard work with governance? What are you excited about in the future? I think open source is definitely my heart. You know, communities, building communities and people. So I can't see myself not doing that. But I really enjoy the challenge of things that are new. I'm a bit like a magpie. I like shiny and new things. So yeah, I don't know where my future will lie. And I don't know long time where that's going to be, but definitely in open source and definitely with community management, I feel. How do you weigh the desire for new things against the long tail of routine drudgery that is community management, making sure the newsletter goes out on time, making sure the call happens on time, checking in again about the doodle poll? How do you balance those? I try to make sure that I care about what really brings me joy and what I enjoy doing are the things that like you kind of said, the day-to-day drudgery and balance them out. So if I spend like a morning doing stuff that is just like walking through treacle in a pillow fight, I have to have something fun in the afternoon. Otherwise I'll be grumpy all evening. So yeah, I try to balance as much as I can and make sure that I do make time for the things that I enjoy doing. I diarize time in my calendar to actually contribute the things I want to contribute as well. Because sometimes as a maintainer, you're just serving others constantly. You don't always get the opportunity to do the things that you want to do, that you care about. So for me, that also gives me that spark of joy. And through the stuff we're doing with Baltic, I come across other cool open source projects, which I can also contribute to in different ways. So that gives me joy as well. I enjoy that as well. When you talk about joy, and the projects that you're interested in, are they related to Mautic and having the community grow? What sort of projects are really exciting as opposed to other ones? Ones that I can contribute to. 
because I'm not a developer. So it's not always that easy for you to find the routine if you're not a developer. So that's probably the first thing. Ones that are welcoming to newbies, to people who are very inexperienced with their software and kind of help you get started. I always find that really helpful. But predominantly, they're things that I come across in the course of running Mautic. So, but there's other things like I use Ubuntu Studio at home. I use Ardor for music composition. Tools like that that I use that I really like is also nice to be able to contribute in some ways to those projects, even if it's reporting a bug or helping with docs or whatever. So yeah, not always to do with Mautic. Sometimes they are. It's nice when it does align because you're benefiting both projects. You use Mautic yourself? I do, but not as much as I should. <laughs> Mainly because <laughs> I just haven't got the time. Yep. <laughs> but cool. yeah, I've supported um, lots of people who do as well through my old business. So yeah. That makes sense. What do you wish someone had told you before you entered on this path as community admin slash community lead as maintainer? I think having the confidence to keep on working in public, even when it feels like you're talking into an echo chamber, because it can be quite disheartening to start with because people just don't respond or nothing happens and you end up doing the work anyway. And it can be very tempting to just be like, I'm just not going to bother. I'm just going to get on and do it. And I find myself doing that quite frequently. But actually, like people are watching. If they can see how they could help and you've made it really clear to them how they can help and what needs to be done, how they can do it, they do start to pick up on that. But if you're not often talking about what could be done and you're just getting on and getting your head down, A, it'll lead to burnout and B, you're not giving people the opportunity to be generous with their time and support the project. And I think I wish someone had actually told me that sooner because it would have given me more confidence and I would have done it more diligently, I feel. That's a great tip. Thank you. Where can people learn more about Motic and you? Uh, you can learn more about me on my website, ruthchingsley.co.uk, which I guess we can pop in the show notes. And about Mautic, mautic.org. And if you're interested in contributing, go to mau.tc slash contribute. And that gives you ways to get onboarded with all the different roles that we've written up about. So it's a great place to start if you're interested in learning a bit more. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. It's been great to have you on. Good luck with the project. Thank you. It goes well. So once again, Ruth, thank you so much and have a good day. Thank you for having me. Listeners, we have another podcast coming on after this one. We're trying to do two podcasts in a row for this special maintainer month thing. So do stick around. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is the correct way to format those questions? Do you put a semicolon in there or something else? Very excited to talk to our guest today. This is another one of the Maintainer Month podcasts for this month, as you may have noticed. We're releasing episodes pretty much every Tuesday, highlighting maintainers and their lives and what they do. It's all in collaboration with GitHub, but really just Maintainer Month is awesome. My maintainer on the line today is Josh Goldberg. Josh, how are you doing today? I am excited and I'm doing well. I've got a giant pitcher of water next to me and feeling good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited. I also have a giant Nalgene of water. I wish it had the lemon that yours has, but you know, you can't have everything. Josh is calling today from a lovely pink lit room in Philly. 
where he is an independent full-time open source developer. He works on projects in the TypeScript ecosystem, most notably TypeScript-ESLint, the tooling that enables ESLint and Prettier to run on TypeScript code. This means he doesn't actually work for TypeScript or ESLint, it's something else. So not in the employee of the Microsoft. Also the author of the O'Reilly Learning TypeScript book and a Microsoft MVP for developer technologies and an active conference speaker, personal projects all over the place, also cats. Josh, it is great to have you on. Tell me how you got involved with TypeScript ESLint. Ooh, I sort of slowly eased into open source. I discovered linting a long time ago and really enjoyed how that helped me write better code, tell me all the things I didn't know about JavaScript and the like, which was a lot. I eventually got involved with the TSLint project, which was the linter for TypeScript code back in the day. TSLint is something that I was a maintainer on towards the end of its life and then helped kill. It is dead. Don't use it. And now TypeScript ESLint is the way to lint TypeScript code with ESLint. Why did you kill your baby? What happened? Well, fortunately, it wasn't my baby. I just joined popular projects after they became popular. This is a repeat thing in my history. In theory, having a dedicated linter for TypeScript sounds very nice. It means that you can directly target TypeScript stuff, such as its syntax or its type checking. You can optimize for it. But it meant that the two communities, the ESLint community and the TSLint community, had to duplicate a lot of work. Every time there was a really good plugin, let's say the React Hooks plugin for ESLint or the Angular rules, the Express rules, we'd have to re-implement them in TSLint land. And because especially 5, 10 years ago, TypeScript was still getting started, wasn't quite as popular and everywhere as it is today, the community for TypeScript was much smaller and thus TSLint was much smaller. So how does TypeScript-ESLint change or improve that? So it acts as a set of extensions on top of ESLint using the ESLint APIs, some of which, when packed, were built for use cases like TypeScript ESLint specifically. So it adds in a new parser that ESLint can use to understand the new TypeScript syntax, and it adds in a bunch of rules for specifically TypeScript code. So it's really that you are linting your code with ESLint, and TypeScript ESLint is the tool that lets you do that, rather than a whole separate tool that you would use separately. Got it. Now, this sounds like a lot of cool work, a lot of technical knowledge there. Are you paid for that through ESLint's Open Collective or something? How does the remuneration for your labor and or the labor of all your co-maintainers work? The biggest source is we have Open Collective, which I would highly encourage anyone who lends or formats their TypeScript code to contribute to. Open Collective slash TypeScript-ESLint. I personally also have my own GitHub sponsors, which is quite a bit smaller per month from that. I... Also, I'm under the impression that ESLint is one of our sponsors that as a project they recognized were pretty useful as we are used by, I want to say, a majority of ESLint's developing companies. And then also, once in a while, if you contribute to ESLint as the arbitrary community member, they'll send you money that way. And I've occasionally fallen into that bucket. It's cool. Yeah, it looks like ESLint has given you $3,000 since July 2021. So thank you, Nick Zakis and team. That is super awesome. Tell me about your co-maintainers. I see a James and Brad, but who else is there? Yeah, James and Brad are the two big ones. James was the person who made TypeScript ESLint initially. Brad has done a lot of work as well. Fun fact, Brad actually worked on Flow at Meta, which is, I think, very funny. Flow is the, to my knowledge, only equivalent competitor that has ever existed. We also have a couple other people. There's Joshua Chen, who is a college student and has joined on as a maintainer. Josh has also done a lot of work with DocuSaurus, which is a fantastic static site generation for documentation. And then there's also someone named Armado2. I know approximately nothing else about Armado2. Other than that, Armado2 has created a lot of great work on the website and has a stick figure as the 
profile photo. That's about it. Love that. Working in public, but also in private or something. Yeah. How do you share the load between you all? We're actually working on this now. And if anyone has any suggestions or pro tips for me, I'd love to hear them. You especially included. So right now, it's just whoever gets to work does it. We're working on a governance proposal that would establish what are the general expectations for a committer and a maintainer, as well as the pay expectations. What does it even take to become a committer or maintainer? Really, we're fortunate that we're small and we get along well enough together that we haven't had to put too much structure in there. But we are growing the project actively. I know there are at least a couple of people who we've talked to about taking on as new committers, even maintainers. So over time, we're probably going to have to formalize that. So how long have you been a maintainer of open source software that you're only sort of formalizing this now? Or I'm aware that your experience is longer than TypeScript Eastland, but I'm just curious. So my first open source project that went in any way popular was in 2013 to 14. That thing was eventually taken down by Nintendo. So that I didn't have to do anything there. The first project that I worked on that had real users was probably TSLint Microsoft Contrib, a set of ex- contributed rules for TSLint and then TSLint itself up through 2018. At no point in time were there ever more than two maintainers while I was a maintainer on either of those projects, to my knowledge, maybe three at one point for TSLint. And it's always been that almost everyone has no time and just needs to divvy up tasks. There's no budget to divvy up. And then for TypeScript PSLint, it was the same thing where Brad would be available and maybe James would be available almost never at the same time. Armada would pop in and out, heaven only knows. And now that I'm here and we have sustainable funding and we have more people, it really only has been the last year or two that this has started to become a real thing that we need to pay attention to. Tell me about the phrase sustainable funding. So there was an open collective, but it wasn't advertised heavily. We didn't have a website prior to, oh, maybe it's already been a year now, prior to some time ago. So we didn't have the ability to tell sponsor potentials, hey, we'd love to put you on the homepage as thanks, which has been a big draw for a lot of sponsors. Also because we didn't have a lot of time to advertise or before I was there, there wasn't a lot of Twitter presence. It was really up to the individual maintainers to advocate for the tool. Whereas now I actively go to conferences. We have a blog. I'm very active on social media like Twitter and Blue Sky and Mastodon. So a lot more people know about us, which has meant a lot more people are willing to pay for us. How does that lead to sustainable funding? What does willing to pay mean? Are you getting X amount in versus X amount out? What's happening there? You're exposing a flaw in my maintenance here, which is that it's all very casual and hand-wavy. It's just, we have seen more people willing to give us money. I have asked companies and a surprisingly large percentage of them have said, sure, why not? But we don't have very defined answers for you of like charts on what our source leads are or how the community has grown that. Got it. Okay, I have a simple question and I am being a bit devil's advocate here. And so I'm sorry. (laughs) You mentioned five main maintainers. Let's take the average rate of SF coder. Well, let's just take 150,000. That's almost a million dollars. That's not what you're bringing in at the moment. So when you say sustainable funding, you mean sustainable for the hobbyist work that you do, as in people feel like they're getting some money back? Or do you mean sustainable as in the server costs and all the other random things that add up to a project being covered? I love talking to people like you who know how to ask these great devil's advocate questions. This is wonderful. First of all, thank you for asking this. It's a pleasure to talk about it. No problem. Yes. The term sustainable is so hand-wavy and vague, and we have different definitions based on our life situations. Brad and James both have full-time jobs, which means that the amount of work they'd be able to put in TypeScript ESLint is limited. 
which is unfortunate for me because they're both really smart and they know a lot of things that I'd love to learn from. Hi, Brad and James, if you're listening. I mean, they're all smart people, all these maintainers I'm going to mention. Joshua is a college student and also has limited time. Armano, I think, has a full-time job, I would assume. I don't know. I'm the only one who's independent full-time and it's not my only revenue source. I also get book royalties. So in theory, if we received no money, we probably could keep going, but I just wouldn't be able to spend time on the project and I would have to spend time on other things for money instead. So I guess the sustainability is both the practical, keeping me involved and, and perhaps the other maintainers as well, but also the moral ethical of, honestly, we should be getting perhaps not a million dollars total, but at least more than minimum wage per maintainer per time spent. Thank you for that. That makes a lot more sense to me. And it's a bit clearer now how the finances work, which is important because it's related to the sustainability of the project. Now, I've been limiting my questions to the top five, right? The maintainers. Obviously, there's a much wider community of users and a, hopefully a smaller community of contributors. I'm curious, how do you signal where the funds go to contributors in the project and how do you get them involved in making decisions? This hasn't come up very often. Our open collective is completely transparent. So people can see where the money goes. It's for the most part, just evenly split up based on share ratios, like a full-time maintainer versus part-time. Most of the time, contributors haven't really asked us about this, perhaps because it's transparent. We did have a small kerfuffle of when we first added the sponsors listing to the homepage. We had to set up a policy of when we would not feel comfortable putting a sponsor. There was a particular organization that espoused some views that we did not feel comfortable advertising an organization for. So we put up a policy on the website and then had a long discussion with an intentionally anonymous user. They didn't want to be you know, called out in public, but thank you to this anonymous user. They did a great job of discussing with us. But otherwise, it hasn't come up. We do occasionally give contributors who we think have done a lot, just a bit of money here and there. We haven't formalized this yet. It's actually going to be what I work on after our main governance proposal. And thank you for reminding me, there are a couple of people who I need to ask if they want to get money. Tell me about the governance proposal. So right now, it's not too complicated. It's just a one to two page Notion document. We're setting up tiers. There are two tiers, a committer and a maintainer. A committer needs to have done a certain set of things, whereas that amount of things doubles for a maintainer. The things we're looking for are anything from small typos or single file bug fixes up to larger pull requests or even architectural proposals. We're going off a pointing system now, kind of like a common agile process that a lot of teams would do where a small bug fix is one, a larger PR is two or five. I personally hate pointing and find this silly and obnoxious, but I also don't know of any better system. Someone please yell a better one at me. So for now, it's 15 points for committer, 30 points for maintainer. But also, this is all hand wavy. If someone does 29 points and is amazing, we will absolutely, of course, ask them to be a maintainer. And then also, we want pay expectations to be that you should do, say, two-thirds of those points on months in order to be paid, give or take. If there's a personal situation that comes up, we'd, of course, be understanding. I like that system a lot. That is really cool. Is that publicly available somewhere? Not yet. Depending on when this podcast is released, it may be. But my timeline is I just finished talking about this version of it with the internal maintainers. I've now started talking to maintainers from other teams. If anyone thinks they have input or wants to nominate someone, please let me know. And then soon I'll post it up Twitter, Mastodon, Discord, and so on. Cool. And you can find those links on the show notes as well at podcast.org. Josh, this is really interesting and cool. My next question is, it sounds like you're doing a lot of DevRel work. You're talking to all of the contributors, all the maintainers, figuring out what's going on. And this is all part of your work as being like a full-time 
open source maintainer. How do you view the Venn diagram of maintainership and developer relations? I'm curious. Yeah. When I came into this, I thought it would be maybe half DevRel, half coding. It's not. It is majority DevRel. And I actually kind of like that. I really enjoy going to conferences, talking to users, being active on Twitter, and soon to be Blue Sky and whatever's coming up next. It's fun. And it's also really useful and informative. I'm learning a lot. I'm making networking connections. I'm talking to awesome podcast hosts who I probably never would have interacted with. Having a great time here. But I do miss the core coding. Though I will say, it's not that different from when I became a staff software developer instead of senior. Codecademy, I was senior for a while, did a lot of code work, did a lot of non-code work. And then once I became staff, the expectation was much more behind the scenes, political maneuvering, helping people, mentoring. So it's not that different. But that's also one of the big differences between, I think, a fully independent open source maintainer, such as myself, and someone who works within a larger, more defined organization, such as a corporate entity. Like I have to go out and do DevRel funding, begging for money, that type of stuff, because I don't have a company behind me to do that for me. That makes sense. Is that hard? Yes. It's excruciating. I hate it. I hate asking for money. I truly <laughs> abhor it. I don't like doing it. It's not a skill I've built up. The way I was raised, I can't brag about myself. Heavens forbid I look egotistical or whatever. And then also it's time spent asking for money, not time spent working on the core product. So I emotionally resist it. I really hate it. But I do really like conferences. So that part is a lot easier for me. Conferences are great. Is there anything that you do as part of the project work that makes it easier for you to ask money so you don't have to go out there with a cold call? Yeah, I'm a big systematizing everything person. I'll make systems. So I have cold emails or DMs or whatnot in my documents, in my formats. I think having documentation around our contributing guidelines, our sponsorship guidelines, what we'll give to sponsors has helped me. But mostly, no. Mostly, it's just pain and something I want to get better at. Is that about hiring maybe too strong a word? But making a role within TypeScript ES Lint for a contributor to help you with that work. So it's not just core maintainership. That's an excellent idea. No, I haven't until now. I really like that though. I feel like we're still in the mindset of a small team project, whereas we're starting to grow into medium-sized team project area now. And that's really exciting. I would love to have someone who's actually good at and passionate about this type of stuff, fundraising, community building, et cetera, to be able to do that. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing the lion's share of that work, which makes sense. Is it fulfilling for you? It sounds fulfilling. So I'm just curious, how do you like it? It is fulfilling. I see people slowly over time start to do the right behaviors. And that makes me feel really good. People learning the difference between, let's say, a typed lint rule and an untyped lint rule. There's also the fundraising part of it that feels satisfying. Like It does feel really good to me when I see a company start to pay us. It means that company has recognized the value of this tool and is willing to spend money to ensure its survival and improvement long term. That feels really good. Have you noticed a downturn in funding as part of the current pseudo-tech recession? Yes. It's a downturn in signups, I would say. A little bit of a downturn in total funding. I think we're at 90%, give or take, maybe 85 or 95 of where we were. So it's not terrible. I will say GitHub dropping PayPal was bad for me personally. I lost some, not a majority, but a good chunk of my sponsor money through there. But then I've made it up since through other people. So it's not too bad. Yeah, that's great. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. Josh, where can people find you on the webs? I am Joshua K. Goldberg or joshuakgoldberg.com on approximately everything. That's my actual website, GitHub, Twitter, Fostodon or Mastodon, Blue Sky, and Twitch and YouTube. All the things. Awesome. 
Cool. Thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. I think it was the best. Listeners, I hope you have appreciated it as well. If you have any comments for us, you can send along an email to podcast at sustainoss.org that gets to us. You can go to podcast.sustainoss.org to see the show notes and all the other episodes we have. You can comment on Discord sustainoss.org and you can hit us up on, we don't have a blue sky yet, but Mastodon or Twitter. I've never said this next thing, so I'm going to say it. Sustain is funded by people. So if you would like to fund us, you can do that. Go to open collective slash sustain OSS. It'd be really awesome to have more funds all the time so we can keep making podcasts like this. Seems kind of weird to say that, but I realized why haven't I said that in every episode? So <laughs> please go ahead and fund me and my work and this podcast. That would be great. Also, the rest of stuff that Sustain does. And also like this podcast and talk about it. Okay, now the spiel is over. Josh, thank you once again. Best of luck with everything. Sorry I didn't get to talk too much about the ideas that I wanted to share with you, but I hope that this helps and uh, keep going. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. This is a real pleasure. 